it's the kind of thing in which if I'm just, you know, getting out my wooden hand planes like I did at the Krenoff school and I zen out in my back shop, that's great. It, it's, it's wonderful, but it no longer serves the purpose of my clients or the price points or whatever it is. It's just me dorking out on wood, right? Totally acceptable, but not in the case that now all of a sudden, you know, people need to get paid. That's the voice of Martin Goebel, owner of Goebel Furniture, and I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project, to getting paid, to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com slash Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Martin Goebel, owner of the St. Louis, Missouri and Chicago, Illinois-based furniture company, Goebel Furniture. As you will hear, Martin's furniture education was pretty impressive, but all the furniture pedigree in the world would have meant nothing if he didn't take that knowledge and combine it with his own business know-how, his creative passion, and just plain hard work to build his own company into the powerhouse that it is today. Along with his skill in furniture building, he is also a scholar on the history of furniture manufacturing, and he is drawn from both of those backgrounds to set his company apart from the rest. Follow along as we talk about blending old and new furniture making techniques, if getting press is really that important, when to talk contracts, and much more. All with his shop cats occasionally voicing their own opinions in the background. But before all the employees, before the years in business, before the two locations, and even before the shop cats, Martin's furniture journey had a beginning. And here it is, in his own words. Early on, I started, I guess, first woodworking at 16 through a high school shop class. It turned out to be something that I took as a result of uh, an odd hour that was open. So I took it on a whim. My father was a, is an architect, and I was grew up working with my hands and renovating basements, skateboard ramps, decks, things like that. So I wasn't unfamiliar with, with tools and workflow and things like that. But, you know, basic things, things everyone did in their garage with their father kind of stuff. And then um, had an aptitude for it. Eventually, after high school, went on to College of the Redwoods, which is now the Krenoff School. And I was lucky enough to be there in the final year of James Krenoff actually teaching. So that was 2001, 2002. And I took about five years off of college. I built furniture uh, for art galleries uh, in a 400 square foot garage up behind my grandparents' house. I eventually then went on to University of Missouri where I finished up my undergrad in um, fine arts. And then I went on to do masters in uh, furniture design at Rhode Island School of Design in Providence. Um, in between uh, my first and second year, I worked on contracts in design engineering with Thomas Moser cabinet makers in Maine. And then at the conclusion of all of it, uh, I bounced around for about eight months doing contract positions because we're now looking at like 2010, where there was a whole bunch of um, 
oh, just coming out of the recession type of uh, jobs, but nothing all that great. And I had a, a list of a couple of not great jobs that you know were in and out in about a month and a half with regard to contract positions. Decided not to continue with further contracts there and started Gobel and Company Furniture in February of 11. That is a, an amazing resume and a lot of stuff jumps out at me, but one of the things that, that really jumps out of me is the time you spent at the, the Thomas Moser cabinet shop. And there are well-known furniture makers, but there are less well-known furniture makers uh, who have large-scale businesses, and, and that's definitely one of them. So before you went out on your own, you worked there and you worked directly under Tom Moser which must have been a dream and I'm sure it was hard, but it was probably also an amazing experience and, and made you definitely a better furniture maker, but it, it, they, they run a, they run a very impressive business as well. So you probably picked up on a lot of business practices and the way a shop is run and all of that, that you must have been experiencing on a daily basis. Can you talk a little bit about what you took away from that experience and, and how you took that and and moved it into the next step, which was making your own company? Absolutely. So I started at Moser in probably May of 2009. And um, I worked uh, as liaison between design and engineering where the, the designers inevitably are frustrated with the engineers who dumb down the designs. And the engineers who think the designers are prima donnas, which is, you know, in, in every industry, um, it's got to function, it's got to look good, it's got to feel good, it's got any number of things. And you know, between those two uh, disciplines, end up getting a, a decent product, or you hope to do so. Uh, Moser it was built out of um, mimicking Shaker designs in early American furniture. So they weren't really uh, designers at heart, but Tom Moser himself was actually an English teacher at the University of Maine at one point. And then started this shop, I believe, back in the 70s. And Tom was an older gentleman at the time, probably just about 80 when I was there. And then he had uh, a number of sons that worked in the business. Um, Aaron Moser, the, uh, one of the sons, I believe he was in marketing at the time, is now their CEO or the president or whatever it is. He's kind of the, the head guy from the family there. But what Moser did really, really well is they hired talented people. And I'm not referring to myself at this point. I was pretty green out of out of graduate school. But um, they put in a, a gentleman that uh, was from North Carolina as their production manager or manufacturing manager. And uh, this guy, Tim, was just an absolute machine. And, and he was sort of at the end of his career and um, worked in the North Carolina sort of mass manufacturing industry for years and more or less started partially retiring to Maine. And uh, he took, took me under his wing. And I think that was the most uh, interesting interview that I've ever had in my life, uh, just speaking to this guy, because this is the guy that I would have like paid for 30 minutes with, but knew the ins and outs of the furniture industry, but was, was, a, was an academic, you know, absolutely knew how furniture should be manufactured, knew the numbers, knew what worked, what didn't work. You know, it, it was just invaluable. And then the other um, uh, engineering manager, John, who was one of my three bosses while I was there, um, was also just this extremely pragmatic guy, which a lot of engineers are, but he wasn't dense to the point in which um, he wouldn't then meet in the middle on things. So uh, I was then working with uh, one of the other sons, David, who is no longer with the company for all sorts of reasons I can imagine. 
but um, occurred after me. And um, he was their director of design. But what I learned there is, you know, they weren't really designing new product. They were mimicking other product that was proven. And those designs were not as successful as their early American work. And then um, there's a, a new uh, guy that uh, kind of came in a few years after me that did some really great things there. And um, I think now he's moved on as well. So, you know, I, I think that there was just like in any business, some, some difficulties, you know, especially with a large family business like that, there were a number of hosers actually in the offices. And then there were some other things that were um, incredible about the company, just as there are in other companies. But um, my experience there was, you know, about eight months and I took the good with the bad and I, you know, essentially left the bad off. And I, I formed my company uh, in part around what I liked about that one, just as I did with any of the other experiences I've had throughout my career. And so uh, I think that what we do now in St. Louis is a, a big hybrid of probably 10 or 20 different experiences where you're trying to design appropriately, you're trying to manufacture appropriately, you're trying to source lumber appropriately, and then most importantly, do sales uh, in, in a way that's going to you know, be the best bang for your buck because we don't have huge marketing budgets. You know, you gotta, I need to see return off of whatever I put out in the world, which is very difficult often. Now your journey, you, you started, you said in, you know, a, a 400 square foot shop years back, but as you went to school and, and you apprenticed and worked at these different companies, by the time you were ready to go out on your own, you weren't looking at making a, a small garage shop where you do one-off pieces. You, you were looking to have a larger company. You studied and definitely have a passion for, for digital design and automated manufacturing. And you wanted to bring that to the table, but you also had this background in traditional woodworking techniques. How did you blend both of those desires the the new and the old guard of woodworking into your shop to make it run seamlessly because those can be at ends with each other not only in a way to physically set up a shop but also in a mental way to run a shop <laughs> well i think that there's uh i wouldn't use the term seamless I, I think that all of us have our hiccups in the way that things run but we try to not trip over the same stone twice i guess but, you know, I think that um, the way that we see mass manufactured furniture in the U.S. right now is uh, something of our own creation and not the way throughout history, you know, furniture was used, produced or, you know, even from the, the fundamentals of it. So if you went and that that's a, a lot, uh, in my opinion, um, as a result of World War II and the technology and the uh, materials that came out of World War II that now let us evolve in a different way. If you go over to Europe, you go to Asia, aside from the furniture coming to the American market, they don't make furniture like they do for the American market for their own markets because people wouldn't have it. They wouldn't accept it. So, you know, if you looked at like 1920s Grand Rapids, which was really the center of the American furniture industry before it moved to North Carolina, um, they were doing a lot of the same things in theory that um, we're doing here, which is utilizing very traditional craft, very traditional materials, but then adding in the technology of the day to mimic those operations. 
because you know i love the idea that everything would be purely handmade but you know what i never grew up in a house in which now i could afford a five thousand dollar coffee table at one point it's purely about the vanity of the craftsman and i'm totally down for the whole art side of it but that's saturday woodworking right it's the kind of thing in which if i'm just you know getting out my wooden hand planes like i did at the krenoff school and i zen out in my back shop that's great. It's it's wonderful, but it no longer serves the purpose of my clients or the price points or whatever it is. It's just me dorking out on wood, right? Totally acceptable, but not in the case that now all of a sudden, you know, people need to get paid. They need to, you know, put gas in their cars. They need we need to sell things. So, you know, in the incorporation of digital technology, automated manufacturing was a necessity because I grew up with, in some cases, pretty cheap furniture and not because it was bad. It was just, you know, what was out in the world. And I had two older brothers and we destroyed things. So the reaction to that type of furniture and just what I would consider normal use uh, drove me to now create a, a hybrid process in which we do use digital design. Is it totally handmade? Absolutely not. But you know what? We're able to now bring price points into an attainable level and I don't now have to reinvent the wheel, uh, you know, 11, 12 times. I remember in like probably 2006 or 2007, right before I went to, to, to RISD, um, I redesigned a coffee table 11 times one year. And it's not because they didn't like the coffee table in advance of it. It was just, it was a custom coffee table at the price of a custom coffee table. So they were going to have me redesign it. And I thought that was the dumbest thing possible. Dumbest thing for me, dumbest thing for everybody else. But if the price dictates it, you got to do it. So in the case that now we're selling product that um, I won't say is is widely attainable, it's definitely a luxury item, but it's what I would consider entry-level luxury items. So if you're driving a BMW 3 Series or you go on a scuba diving trip to Mexico, you can afford our product line of furniture. So, you know, do we do the higher end? Absolutely. But, you know, a lot of the technology was brought into this process so that, you um, it's now scalable and we can control prices and do any number of things, which I think is uh, from a business standpoint, more responsible than producing 30 pieces of, of art every year. Now your company does a lot of residential stuff, like you said, and a lot of people listening have basic idea of how a residential project works. You work with a client or you work with a designer and there's that back and forth people do it differently and, and there's ins and outs, but that that idea is understandable. When you build spaces and and, and build out projects for major companies and, and corporate clients and hospitality clients, that's very foreign for a lot of people building now, starting their company or, or mid-level in their company. I know you have a big list of people that you've worked with and, and names like Nike and jumps out and, and there's a lot of impressive breweries and, and you do these build outs for large, large spaces. Can you talk a little bit about the process of a project like that, how it, it comes about, how you go through the motions of, of figuring it all out, budgets and actually deliverables at the end when you're not dealing with just a single client or a designer, you're navigating an entire company. You know, I think the biggest thing, uh, I'm trying to think of where to start. I mean, in the case of getting any of those projects, it's all through the design community, architects, interior designers, 
procurement managers for the various companies and most likely one of each on each one of the projects, if not four of each on each of the projects. And um, they're doing big capital investments. So we're what's called FF&E, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. And that is one of the last things that goes in. So once they're done painting the walls, then the furniture comes in. Um, that being said, all of those budgets get set up uh, in advance of all of the construction starting. And they, they fluctuate a little bit depending on what the needs are and how the construction changes over the course of time. But um, you know, all of those projects you know, that you'll see under our um, contract furniture on our, our website or you know, hospitality, I forget exactly what it's listed as, those are in some cases two and three years in the making. And, and we'll do five, six, 700 pieces for, for each one of them or we'll you know, take a uh, university and we'll do 700 bar stools or you know, whatever it is. And um, they really don't reference any of the, I mean, it's, it's almost a totally separate company, but when we started, just like any small business, which we still are, we didn't say no to anything. You know, it, it wasn't always the best amount of money. It wasn't always the worst amount of money. It was the, everybody gets paid this week. I mean, as a, a small business owner, I think even those who are extremely successful, everyone is thrilled when they make payroll every two weeks or every four weeks or whatever it's set up as. And, and that's really how we started getting into some of these restaurant projects because the inherent quality of our furniture then lent itself to a higher um, abuse environment like a restaurant, right? People use restaurant furniture like they use rental cars. So you know, we chased a lot of that down and it's based off of a lot of our um, work within the, uh, the residential industry. A lot of times the, the, those projects come from us doing work for the restaurateur, or the bar owner, or the brewery owner uh, in their homes. And then they say, you know, I love it. Let's do it for the rest of it. And then, you know, there's changes. It's, it's a fundamentally different product than what would go in your home. The finishes are different. You know, the strength of things are different. The materials need to sometimes change because, you know, you can't afford to put $10,000 tables into a, into a restaurant or, you know, most can't. So, uh, you know, there's no great advice I have to anybody about getting work in that industry or anything else aside from talk to everybody, tell people what your capabilities are. And, you know, the best part about the furniture making or the woodworking world is we're not here to make individual products. We're here with a skill set. And how you apply that skill set is just, you know, whatever you make of it. So in the case of digital design, automated manufacturing, we look at that as just another tool in the toolbox. Just as in the finishing world, we might use six different finishes. We might use 12 different glues, depending on application. Usually things with a curve are cut in a digital environment. Things with a straight line are cut in the shop because it's easier. Uh, and then, you know, in the case of, Restaurants, hotels, and whatnot, you'll see a lot of straight lines because they're cheaper. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that actually answers the question, but, you know, it's sort of how we find ourselves in that industry. Something that I want to follow up with on that is you mentioned that in these corporate and hospitality spaces, people don't always treat the furniture well. And I know that from my company. I, I, have experienced putting stuff into commercial spaces and it has not been treated like people would treat their furniture at home. So I feel your pain on that one. How, <laughs> it, right? It, it's, it's, it's amazing some of the, the callbacks you get from 
companies and you say, and you stand in front of the piece of, of furniture and you say, how did, how did this happen? And, and you hear the story and you, you say that must've been some crazy office party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes we hear the story and the other times like, I just don't know what happened. It just, it just broke. And you're like, you know, I, I it, it, it used to infuriate me when I was like, okay, just tell me what really happened. I can fix it better. I, I equate it to like someone going into their doctor and be like, I don't know how I broke my finger. I swear. It's like, you know exactly how you broke your finger, you know? But I, I, I have to remind myself always that it's not my furniture. It stopped being my furniture the minute they gave me $1 for it. And um, if it can be fixed, great. If it can't be fixed, that's fine. We'll make another one. If you don't want another one, that's all right. You've already paid me for that one. And, and you know, I think at one point, I remember when I was like probably 22 or 23, I had this like great emotional attachment to all of the furniture that was coming out of my shop. And to some level, I still do because, you know, it's something I created. I saw it on a computer screen. I saw it on a chalkboard. But, you know, I think that's at one point that went away. And I think that's when it really became more of the business uh, for me. And um, I don't know. I think once I got to that point where it really is just a product that you're sending out to the world, and sometimes it's going to be in somebody's, you know, house or office for 38 seconds, and somebody's going to screw it up, um, or it's going to be there for 50 years, and someone's never going to screw it up. I don't know. I, I kind of get I've detached from that over the years. Um, I should probably also say that, uh, you know, our company makes about a thousand pieces of furniture a year, give or take, depending on who's buying what that year. And I make maybe two or three. I'm, you know, in very front end, very back end. So that could possibly lead to some of it. But um, yeah, no, no, we definitely, I think I rarely hear what actually has happened to the furniture. Well, removing yourself emotionally from it is where I was going with that because you have people sign a contract when they give you money. And when they sign the contract, it becomes their piece of furniture and they can do whatever they want with it. But that contract that you have them sign has to cover you because they could do whatever they want with it, but that doesn't mean that you'll fix whatever they do to it. So can you go into a little bit about your contracts? Uh, I'm sure your residential and your commercial ones are different, but some things that really stand out for you that you'd like to share about your contract process. Uh, you know, I think that people are very, very hesitant to sign contracts for this, even though, you know, they would never buy a car without signing a contract. But there's some, something about furniture where they're used to walking into crate and barrel putting down the credit card and walking away, right? So in the case of now signing a contract for this, uh, my experience is it's been brief. And in the case that, I mean, contracts are only worth a piece of paper they're written on and the value of the person signing it. Uh, I've been sued a number of times, uh, I guess when I say a number of times, twice, um, because people just didn't want to adhere to their contract. And, you know, it's few and far between. It's sad. And there's just nothing you can do about that. But um, as for the actual contract, it simply states what they're getting. It references an invoice that tells how much it costs, references the design that you sent in a certain email. 
and that they're willing to now wait 12 to 20 weeks to get it. And, you know, you can add anything in. I think our contract is like two pages because nobody's going to read it beyond that. But it deals with cancellation. It deals with changes, you know, just basic stuff. And uh, it's kind of like a bunch of kids playing, uh, you know, uh, basketball in the street. And everyone before the game talks about what fouls are. They should, right? When everyone's friends, that's when you talk about the rules of the game. When everyone's pissed off and screaming at each other and somebody's holding their face and crying, that's not the time to talk about the rules of the game. So, you know, we try to get as much of that out there as humanly possible and be very transparent with it. Because, again, it's not emotional for me at this point. It's a product. I love the product. I love the process. I love it all. But the actual product, I will be in my shop for about mm, two days to six months but it's going to be in their home for years. So they're going to get emotional about it. So, you know, the contracts are just as simple as this is the way I work. It's, it's not a discussion. This is just how we work. You know, it's fair. It's honest. We've done this many, many times over with many people. Um, I hope they're acceptable to you. Sometimes we adjust them a little bit in the, the corporate world. Generally they just send us their contract and they're so large, like any of those companies are so large that, uh, you know, I could write anything I want on the contract. If they don't want to do it, they're just not going to do it. You know, it, it's that simple. We're a small company. They're a big company. But, um, you know, again, in, in 11 years or going on 11 years, I've had two problems, right? Two serious problems, but they resolve themselves just the way that every, everything else does with attorneys and arbitration and God knows what else. But um, I think it's a pretty good track record. Yeah, you know, let's say we've had 5,000 clients in 11 years, or maybe 2,000, who knows what it is. But the fact that only two of them got pissed off, I mean, just like pissed off more people than that in a bar in a night. <laughs> that, so. I hear exactly what you're saying, and that pickup game story was perfect. I have heard contracts described in a lot of different ways, but that was definitely one of my favorites. Now, I first came across you and your company in a magazine that we were both featured in. And I'm not going to lie and say that I picked it up because you were in it. I read it because <laughs> I, I, I wanted to see what they said about me, but I was definitely captivated by your article. I, I believe it was, it, it was about your company, but it was also about how you created and delivered and hand delivered a throne for the queen of Zambia, which is, is an impressive story. And as a side note, people should find that story. And, but I wanted to, to take a step back from that and talk to you about press in general. There's a lot of ways to get your company name in the spotlight, whether it's regular press or it's social media or it's going to events what have you found is the best way to get your name out there to grow your business you know i think the best way is just to tell people what you do and in our little microcosm of the world you know the amount of furniture that we are talking about right now let's take every maker on all of Instagram, on every magazine, we make up collectively less than like one half of 1% of the furniture industry, right? So nobody, has, the vast majority of people in the world have never bought furniture even remotely like ours. 
and the differences and the nuances between what you do and what we do and what everyone else does. You know, I've got a lot of friends within uh, uh, the, the woodworking and fine furniture industry. We're not even remotely alike, but, you know, in the case that we talk to each other, um, we end up having these conversations about how different it is, but everyone writes the same stupid story about us about, oh, you know, they're using wood from down trees and tornadoes and, you know, they're lumberjacks and they all call us carpenters and they all call us, you know, whatever other generalized terms. And that's fine because it, they're at least acknowledging we exist. Uh, the magazines, uh, I think, are horribly guilty because, again, they're, they're just they're writing the same story about all of us. And I, I cringe at a lot of them. But the, the one article that uh, I thought was quite good and that did encompass uh, what it is that we do here. It, it was that uh, that UK magazine, what is it, Furniture and Cabinet Making or something to that effect, at least did a deeper dive on what it is that makes us unique and what made you unique. And I think that that's so because, you know, in, in England, there's a pretty significant uh, culture uh, and, and reverence for fine furniture and custom furniture, whereas there isn't in the U.S. You know, there is a little bit in New England. There is a little bit in uh, like Seattle, Oregon, things like that. But really as a whole in the U.S., it's not there. But I, I think that the, the the roundabout thing I'm trying to say here is if you're not telling people your narrative, you, what makes you interesting, why you love it, you know, magazines are just going to write the same stupid story about you. I, I saw this, uh, this uh, little satirical image the one time that was the cover of Fine Woodworking but someone changed it to fair woodworking. And then they changed all the little prompts they have on the front of the magazine to like, get it to fit just good enough and you know, like that. And it was really very entertaining because for some horrific reason, a magazine that seems to govern studio furniture is geared to, you know, dentists who've lost their libido and now are throwing all their money into, you know, thousand dollar hand planes that they don't know how to use and and now we're, everyone's clamoring to be featured in that magazine <laughs> like i mean i was one of those don't get me wrong like i wanted to see my name there i wanted all my friends in california that i went to school with to see what i was working on but I, you know that cannot be the gold standard for it dwell magazine is not writing about me unless we hire a marketing firm and pay them a lot of money you know it's just not happening so i think magazines are total sh Every so often, the Wall Street Journal comes out with a really great article about a uh, furniture maker. A lot of it Brooklyn-based, I think, for obvious reasons. I, but, I had an, um, I had I had an article in the Wall Street Journal, so I'll, of course I'll... you did. <laughs> Please don't bleep that out either. <laughs> but no, it's great, you know. I mean, like they they actually care. But I mean, a lot of the magazines are just such. I, I, I can hardly even. I, I can't get. I can't even look at fine woodworking anymore. Like. That's the one I gloss over when, like, I walk straight past when I'm in the, the airport. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think at this point I have to put in one of those disclaimers that you hear on shows that that these opinions are the views of my guest and they do not necessarily reflect back on myself or the show. So if if any of those magazines in question want to write nice things about me, then then feel free to go for it. I love when people write about me. So for any of those magazines, I'm I'm always available.
And and I know that you're joking around a little bit. And I, I know that you are also always happy to have articles written about you. So let's just sum all that up and 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 say any any press is good press and and go from there. Would that would that work? This is good press. But I think that, you know, number one, you should never, ever pay for press. Um, at least it, it, unless it's better than I've ever received. And we received a decent amount of it, but I, oh my God, I've never seen anything that's, that's pushed the needle one direction or the other. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, all of our marketing efforts over the years, whether it's trade shows or product placements or, or articles or, uh, you know, advertisements, I've never seen a whole lot of work come out of that. It's expensive. It's really expensive. Uh, and I think that's just because what we're doing does not appeal to the mass public. So why would you put out, you know, that message to the, the, the mass audience? It's got to be a much, much more tailored, you know, um, whatever it is. I mean, I think that like at Moser, they used to buy the uh, the uh, uh, whatever it is, the, the, the list of people from the Boston Pops and, you know, the, the Botanical Garden and the data mine, any number of other things. That's smart. You know, those are the people with care that have appreciation. If you're listening to classical music or the Boston Pops or Symphony or whatever, you probably have an appreciation for other fine things. So, I mean, that's how we've gone about it. And you go yeah. to a lot of, of events and we talk, you know. Christmas season is the greatest thing ever for every doctor and lawyer. They all have parties and they're all bored with each other. So, you know, I end up going to a lot of client things. The the idea of press is always amazing and I've always been excited about it and still get very excited about in being in different articles and publications. And I definitely enjoy that. But as somebody who's run their own business, I definitely understand and see that there is nothing quite like that face-to-face -face meeting with somebody where it clicks and you shake hands and you know that that is a connection. And I've definitely seen that as a much deeper way to have business happen. Press is amazing and I'll take it any day of the week. Oh, but absolutely. There, but there's also that that person-to-person -person contact where you're not just a face on a magazine. People understand who you are and furniture is a real life thing that people want to touch and feel and interact with. And I think that there is definitely something to be said to get somebody excited about buying a piece of furniture when they meet the person that builds it with their own hands. Now, speaking about building things with your own two hands, you've already talked a little about it, but you aren't building every piece that comes out of your shop. That would be impossible. You would not be cost effective and physically possible for you to build 700 bar stools and still have other projects going on at the same time. So you have a lot of people working in your shop. You keep saying that you're a small company and yes, you are a small company in the, the big scheme of companies, but as a standard furniture company, you are not that small. Can you talk a little bit about your hiring practices, the people you have 
working for you and the types of positions you are hiring for. I know you are hiring a new position right now. So maybe talk a little bit about that, what you're looking for in an employee and what you know from your years of being in this business is a good fit for somebody to work for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, for so many years I spent, you know, I, I can't even remember how many years uh, just watching the brown water come off me in the shower at night and, you know, the, in your nose and your eyes and, you, you know, you get it. But um, I think that what I do now is I, I'm, I, I'm more in the theory side of it. I'm really the ultimate goal is to make what we do uh, available to as many people as possible. It, it's just inherently not going to ever be the cheapest thing in the world or even the most attainable thing in the world, but incremental steps to get there is now going to have our work be able to in, enhance the lives of more people, which is really my goal. And, you know, I, I talk about um, tools in the toolbox or ingredients where I think uh, woodworking or furniture making or, you know, casework or whatever you want to call it is, um, a lot like cooking in the sense that um, you're taking raw ingredients uh, or materials, sometimes better, sometimes worse, and um, you're doing certain things to them. And just like there are certain restaurants that are better than others, uh, we can probably safely assume that the vast majority of them are getting the same quality carrot or they're getting the same quality, you know, olive oil or whatever it is, you know, to some gradient more or less, but you know, in the end or in the beginning, everyone's starting off on an even playing field. So then it's really just what you do to it and how you manipulate those raw ingredients that are going to yield a better or worse product. And so uh, I think that when I was then making furniture, selling furniture, marketing furniture, designing furniture and having to do all of that, I got so overwhelmed and I was working so many hours that I hated making furniture. Right. And so for me, it was always in order to get to that goal, I needed number one, more people, more ideas, you know, collective ideas that is, and um, then a reorganization of the craft process. Because by the time I was 28, I was burnt out on making furniture because my hands hurt. I was coughing up dust and I, you know, wasn't able to live normally. I had, you know, you're like a woodworking hermit, you know, and maybe that was just me. And I wasn't, you know, acting effectively or working effectively, but I knew it needed to change. And that's really where then we started adding, or I started adding technology into my process, because if you have one plus one craftsman, you get two or two and a half, one plus one uh, craftsman plus technology can yield 20 or 25, you know, call it a 10x multiplier on that. With the same input from craftsmen, but now we're taking some of the more difficult processes away from the craftsman hand. And at that, the only reason you would know that our furniture is then digitally produced in some ways or in an automated fashion is because if you saw a large population of them, they'd all look too regular, right? There's going to be a deviation if an individual craftsman builds a hundred of anything purely by hand. They get tired. They get annoyed, they get bored, people miss, right? But if we can now bring the technology into the process and get it into the process as late on as possible, there's going to be a consistent product or a more consistent product. So 
what we do is we try to apply the technology and apply that so if the 100% resolution is the final piece, the thing that goes out the door, we try to bring the components that are going to be digitally produced to a 92 to 95% resolution or finish with the automated process. And, you know, some people will disagree with me on that, but I think it's very similar to the technology today. I think that the conversation about electric motors being applied to machines or even a machine in general, as opposed to a handsaw, probably had the same number of people that just didn't trust it, didn't like it. It's just not the standard process. But we're using technology today, and a lot of the CNC work that we're doing is the technology of 1970 aerospace, right? Or, or medical. And then it trickled down to the cheaper industries like uh, wood manufacturing. So in the case of hiring people, it, it's very much uh, a group of people that need to be very comfortable with collaboration and with team effort. And the team effort is now no longer just the three guys that are building furniture all in the same project and back. It's material procurement. It's the guy taking out the trash. It's our office manager, Kelly. It's any number of people that make the world go round. And everyone is equally important. Uh, you know, I, my brother and uh, my sister-in-law were in the Air Force for 10 years. And they at one point told me that the Air Force is only 3% pilots. And I, it stopped me for a minute. And I thought, really, how is that possible? So 97% of the Air Force. And I, if there are Air Force people out there that want to correct me, maybe it's less or more than that. But it's not much more than that. But if only 3% of the Air Force is pilots, you know, and they're the guy that's, you know, zipping through some mountain pass, dropping a bomb on something. It was the 97% of the other people that made it possible. And, you know, when people come in, they, they need to fully understand that. And I is the owner. And even though that my name is on the front door, um, it's not me making the furniture. It's very rarely me making the furniture. I did make that throne just because when the hell else am I ever going to have an opportunity to do that? But, you know, in the case of, you know, who we hire, that's our shop cat, Alphonse. He's whining, wants to go out in the shop. But we're sitting in the office right now. Um, anyway, sorry about that. Uh, he, uh, so, you know, the people that come in, it, it's very much about, you know, there are people that are the most fabulous craftsmen in the world, but they can't work in a collaborative environment or they don't want to. And that's totally fine. It's just not the kind of person that we have here. And if they do come in, they come in for four or five months, sometimes two weeks, and they're gone. And it's just all about meshing and chemistry. And uh, my shop manager, Jason Dacus, who you guys see in a lot of the Instagram posts, has been with me going on 10 years. So about nine and a half at this point. And he and I are horribly abrasive at times. And um, it's a mutual respect. It's an understanding that everyone's good at their job. But there's with strong personalities and people who are good at what they do, there's going to be really, really large disagreements at times. So, you know, we try to just take everyone's best um, skill set and apply them to the finished product. Because, again, the most important thing is the best product goes out the door and it, no one's ever going to care about who made it, who designed it, who anything did if the thing now falls over and breaks or it ends up in the dumpster. So, you know, we're, we're rather, you know, aside from the fact that we talk about it, we love it. Uh, 20 years down the road, 50 years down the road, as much as I'd love to think everyone's going to be thrilled that it's a Martin Goebel or a Jason Dacus, no one cares. <laughs> they just want a nice piece of furniture. And we, we try to produce that for them.
There are a lot of people out there who have been listening to this and are just taking in all the information you have. You are a wealth of knowledge. If you had just ended your career when you were getting out of school and you went into another profession, you would already have had a an impressive background in furniture making and the furniture business, but you've gone on to continue to build that story and to continue to expand on your working knowledge of the furniture business. For people who are thinking of taking that first step and they're not sure what that first step even is, or there's people who are out there who are already in the industry, but they want to run their company better. What advice would you give to those people who are looking for a way to run a furniture business better? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of what we're doing here is, uh, like I said, the collective efforts of a lot of people. And when people come into the company, they have different ideas and we try to be open to what those ideas are because we try not to make the same mistakes that we've made in the past, which I assure you there are a lot of, and we try not to make mistakes that others within the company have already made or witnessed at you know, previous experiences. Um, one of the other things so in a previous life before I got into the, the, the wood stuff very heavily, uh, I was in the aquatics world. I played water polo and it was kind of either that direction in college or, or the wood direction. I went the wood direction. Uh, but I had a coach for many years that always would refer to something called tank awareness. And he would refer to the pool as a tank. And you always want to know where you are in the tank and where you should be going in the tank. Right. And it's just a matter of how many uh, times up and down the pool you've been up and down and different situations and knowing what to expect next or just experiencing things. So really it was just a matter of saying, you know, understand where you are, understand what you're trying to do and where you're going. And you're thinking those two or three steps ahead. And you know, I, I, I kind of take that theory into this business as well. Whereas you know, there's so many unknowns and if I can start checking off some of those unknowns, those are the ones that I'm gonna trip up on. Whereas, you know, the things that I do day in and day out, you know, there's a pretty high probability that they're going to go successfully, right? You know, that's why we have a production line. You know, everyone's built those pieces of furniture seven, eight, ten, hundred times over. But in the case that we start doing things more custom, which has been now the trend during and, you know, as we're emerging from COVID, people are buying really, really crazy top end furniture. A lot of very wealthy people that are now bored at home. And that's great. I'm thrilled that they can do it. I'm thrilled we get to help them with that. But, you know, we're doing things with brass these days. We're doing things with stone these days. We're doing things with steel these days. And those are pretty foreign concepts to me. And think that the more information that I can get about that and have a better awareness of what is around me, the pitfalls I'm going to have by putting steel next to wood or brass inlaid into wood or glass and thicknesses and, you know, God knows what else. Um, that's helping us to be a better company. And I think that from the, the onset of uh, uh, any training, you know, it, it's just to soak up as much of those odd experiences and, and to get as good a tank awareness as you possibly can. Because when now other problems come up, um, 
or other opportunities come up, you're now able to manipulate them any way you want, right? And it's all about the, you've got a standard set of ingredients. And if you don't have the knowledge on how to transform those, you know, it's never going to go well for you. And if you, you know, only are able to manipulate wood in one certain way, everything's going to look the same. And the minute someone says, hey, can you do this? And it's not within that wheelhouse, you're going to have a, a really tough time. And I don't say that just because I think other people are underskilled. I'm saying that we've screwed up many, many times. And, uh, you know, if all I did is read something a little more, I tried it a couple extra times before I sold it. That would have made my life a lot simpler. This has truly been an enjoyable conversation from talking about woodworking, which I always enjoy to hearing your stories, to just knowing that you're in an office full of shop cats that want to get out and and build stuff. It's all of it together has just really, really been enjoyable for me. And I'm sure everybody listening has also not only enjoyed, but really learned from the things you've said. So I just want to thank you very much for sitting down with me today and having this open and honest and helpful conversation, not only with me, but with the entire woodworking community. Everything you said has has helped a lot of people and we all appreciate it. And what can I say? It's kind of like herding cats, right? <laughs> perfect, perfect way to end it. <laughs> Been waiting to use that for years. <laughs> anyway. Um, perfect. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan.com. And I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.